This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Welcome, colleagues, to this last wondrous canticle of the Divine Comedy. In the final third of the poem, we're in for a remarkable experience, one that I hope you'll find edifying and inspiring. Like the beautiful Trinity windows of Robbins Chapel here on Baylor University's campus, Dante's Paradiso has the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the center of everything. Indeed, the Paradiso is the part of the poem without which nothing we've read before can be rightly understood. In the Inferno, we saw the diminished life of those who refuse God's grace and cling obstinately to sin. Now, in the Paradiso, we see even more clearly the misery and senselessness of rejecting the glory intended for us by the Lord. We can't help but ask, why, oh why, sad souls in hell, do you wallow in self-destruction when God made you for so much greater? In the Purgatorio, we saw the joyful cooperation of those who long for redemption in Christ, who walk in faith, hope, and love, and who embrace the grace of Christian discipleship. We reveled in their stories and praised the virtues that fit them for heaven. Now, in the Paradiso, we're able to understand better why the arduous ascent up the mountain is both vitally essential and worthy of our best. We can't help but exclaim, well done, thou good and faithful servants. In the Paradiso, everything comes together. In the saints' overwhelming pleasure in God's presence, beauty beyond measure appears. Our theme is the highest fulfillment of human longing, the vision of the God who is love and whose love is made manifest in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hero, the pilgrim Dante, now freed of the weight of sin and soaring with lightness of soul, will see, hear, and understand things which the poet Dante will strain to put into words. And here's where we must admit a difficulty. Dante knows St. Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Beginning in Paradiso, Line four, the first canto, Dante professes, I have been in that heaven he makes most bright, and seen things neither mind can hold nor tongue utter when one descends from such great height. We've all had times when describing a momentous experience was difficult. We can use words literally. I saw a bright light. I heard loud thunder. We can also use words figuratively. It was like drinking from a fire hose. I've got peace like a river. We can try to connect new and old experiences as when we say, it reminds me of that time when, but when one's experience is well beyond the ordinary, words often come up short. Most of us offer excuses. Words fail. I guess you had to be there. But Dante is determined to do his best to put the vision of glory into words. Where you and I would fail, Dante carries on. Yet he realizes no ordinary poetic endeavor lies ahead of him. 
His ultimate subject is the consummation of, of all human desire in two great mysteries of the Christian faith, the Incarnation and the Trinity. As extraordinary a poet as he is, he's trying to put words to extraordinary things that outstrip the human mind in its current condition. Others, we ought to remember, have struggled at this point. St. Augustine, for example, tells us in his confessions that he and his mother Monica were briefly taken up in prayer to the heavens themselves, but sighing, we returned to the sound of our own tongue. They fell back into ordinary life, unable to fully describe their experience. Like Augustine, Dante is attempting something hard. He'll use the best words any human has ever assembled to tell the best things any human has ever known. In the Inferno, Dante proceeds on the basis of his own ingenuity and memory. In the Purgatorio, he calls upon Calliope, one of the nine muses associated with epic poetry. But for Paradiso, he needs more than merely mortal poetic powers. So in line 13, he writes something remarkable. O oh, good Apollo, for this last work of art, make me as fit a vessel of your power as you demand when you bestow the crown of the beloved Lord. Till this hour, one peak of twin Parnassus has sufficed. But if I am to enter the lists now, I shall need both. We must remember that Apollo is no mere muse like Calliope, but the god of music itself. By invoking Apollo, Dante identifies a need for surpassingly great inspiration. But Apollo is not only the god of music, but a prophecy, which is why in the ancient world people journeyed to Delphi to hear Apollo's oracle. By appealing to Apollo, Dante signals his need not only for poetic inspiration, but prophetic power so he can tell and judge what must be. Yet beyond music and prophecy, Apollo is the god of reason or locus. Dante's poetic craft is here most astonishing, for we careful readers are to take Apollo, the god of reason, who is the son of the pagan father god Zeus, as a poetic figure for Christ, the Logos of God, who is our heavenly father's only begotten son. Dante's prayerful invocation at the outset of the Paradiso, then, is a stunning Christian adaptation of a pagan image. It's a poetic figure in which, under the guise of Apollo, he beseeches Christ, the Son of God, who inspires prophetic power, and who, as the Word of God, enables the Word within us, our power of reason, to hit its mark. For all of that, heaven boggles the imagination and strains understanding, and Dante knows it. In line 70, he admits, to signify man soaring beyond man, words will not do. Let my comparison suffice for them for whom the grace of God reserves the experience. He'll do his best, as we'll do our best. But in his own way, Dante does ultimately say something like, words fail. I guess you had to be there. Well, colleagues, there is where Dante will have us find a great multitude in heaven. It includes so many heroic and saintly figures of the faith, 
We have great things ahead of us in Paradiso. By the end of the canticle, we'll see that the Virgin Mary has highest seat of honor and leads heaven in humble adoration of the Lord. We'll see the great doctor of the church, St. Augustine, alongside St. Benedict and St. Francis. What about Moses, who God called to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage and into the promised land? He's there, the chief whose people fed on manna, as Dante describes him. We'll be told of Samuel, the son of Hannah, in Canto 4, who was a valiant Hebrew prophet, priest, and judge. And Joshua, courageous leader of the children of Israel, appears in the sphere of Mars in Canto 18. Rachel, the beloved and humble spouse of Jacob, sits with Beatrice herself just beneath the feet of Mother Eve. Let's not forget Ruth, called by Dante in a marvelous turn of phrase, twice grandmother of the singer who in grief for his sin cried, have mercy upon me. In the fourth sphere, that of the sun will encounter wise saints, including Solomon, king of Israel, who prayed for wisdom above riches, and Boethius, whose consolation of philosophy relates his wisdom in the days leading up to his martyrdom, and St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor with whom Dante will have a lengthy exchange. St. Bernard of Clairvaux figures prominently, as he'll be Dante's final guide when we get to Canto 31. All these great saints of heaven are joined by an innumerable host. I can't wait to read with you of them in the cantos ahead. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.